From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We will, of course, talk about the pandemic today and the latest on Colorado's vaccine rollout. But we've also created a show that allows you to escape the relentlessness of COVID. We travel to two secluded islands. Yes, they're in Colorado, and soon more people may get to experience them. It's a spectacular spot, loved by generations of people who visit. Plus a musical escape with Wesley Schultz of the Lumineers. His new solo project is a record of dressed down covers. I think a lot of this album is trying to expose what was already there. It's like we're putting the, the supermodel in sweatpants. Why the hell are you so sad? And why it took some time for queer Santa to get used to that name. During a time when so many of us have been physically distanced from friends, neighbors, and colleagues, your generous support has helped Colorado Public Radio bridge the gaps, bringing our community together through the stories that connect us all. Voluntary support is the lifeblood of the content and coverage we all rely on. Thank you for being our partner in making this kind of radio happen for the Colorado community each and every day. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're going to start this show on a Friday with a bit of an escape, which we could all use right about now. We have a story for you about islands, an archipelago to be precise. This isn't in the Caribbean or South Pacific, but in Colorado. Private land, and the idea is to make it a public park. Christy Borchers joins us from Lake City, which is in Hinsdale County, where she's a commissioner. And Christy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me this morning. I honestly never thought I'd be talking about an archipelago in Colorado, but here we are. Uh, This is 10 acres or so of land, including a peninsula that juts into Colorado's second largest lake, Lake San Cristobal, and connects to two islands by a suspension footbridge. Gosh, it sounds like the stuff of childhood dreams, doesn't it? It's a spectacular spot, loved by generations of people who visit. Yeah, so we're very excited about this project. When you said that it's an escape, I think that's part of the reason why it's got such community support for us here in Hinsdale County. It's nice to think about something that's not related to COVID. So it's been a perfect time for a perfect project. We'll talk more about that project, but I I gather you've been on these islands and what do you feel when you're there? So the islands abut the peninsula, which is right next to the county boat dock. And so from the end of the largest island, you stand there and look upwards towards the headwaters of the Lake Fork of the Gunnison And it's just a spectacularly magical place. I think of my time in Lake City, and you just feel so very close to the mountains. I mean, of course, you're in the mountains, but peaks jut above you. Yeah, we found during our 2019 avalanche season that we have very steep land in Hinsdale County. Mm -hmm. So we're just a teeny little spot nestled in spectacular mountains. And that's true as well of Lake San Cristobal, uh, where Lake City gets its name. That lake is just over two miles long, 
formed by damming a river, but not a man-made dam. How, how did this lake even come to be? So as far as we can tell, the Slumgullion earth flow, that's a hard word for me to say, Slumgullion <laughs> earth flow, came down about 700 years ago and dammed that uh, lake fork of the Gunnison. The term Slumgullion is the name of a stew that the miners would make. It's got a distinct orangish chalky color, which is exactly what the rock looks like. And the earth flow actually continues to move just a little bit, but it's a, a dominant geographical feature in our landscape. Are these islands, like, are they wooded? So the islands themselves, there are not a lot of trees at all. They're sort of more high alpine, some beautiful little cactus grow on the largest island, geese nest. The peninsula itself has some trees on it, but it's a bit of a kind of a high alpine meadow-like location. Because the Slumgullion earth flow dammed the river, it's basically, if you can imagine the lake not being there, you would see that this is like many of our very steep valleys. All right. Well, that's a picture of this rather magical place. What is the history of the archipelago? Like, how did it come to have a fancy footbridge posted, I think, with a no trespassing sign? The peninsula itself is called the Morningside Lode Mining Claim. This particular spot was one of the very many, many, many identified mining claims. It's a way that our county was settled by miners who were coming here to look for gold. Uh, and then, of course, the shopkeepers who came to mine the miners. So this particular <laughs> piece of property was not conveyed by the BLM. It was always in private hands. We know that the family of Richard King in the 50s was sort of eyeing this spectacular property and imagining having to squint his eyes a little bit, a, a big ski area coming down from Peniston Park adjacent to the lake. So, you know, there were big dreams for quite a while about some real high-class recreation. Fortunately for us in Lake City, those dreams were not realized, and instead our recreation takes on a bit more of a, a low-key experience for visitors. Right. Lake City did not become an Aspen or a Vale. So a lot of this archipelago is in private hands, and the idea is to have it all in the public trust, if you will. How, how does this footbridge, which is so Robinson Crusoe, how does it enter the picture? So the footbridge was constructed, we believe, to allow um, the private owners to travel from the larger peninsula onto the biggest island. And the footbridge was replaced in 2012 by a beautiful iron wrought footbridge. These little lights on it at night, it's just... Uh, you can't help but want to go out there. I was going to say, I mean, it it would be trespassing at this point to walk across Correct. that bridge. But the idea is to not have that be private land anymore. You're raising a lot of money to make this purchase possible. You are doing so in part with the Trust for Public Lands. And Great Outdoors Colorado has committed more than a million dollars. GOCO, of course, funded by lottery uh, revenues in part. 
how are you on raising the funds? You have until I think December 15th. Yeah, that leaves us about 200,000 in private contributions to raise before the 15th. We've just gone over the 100,000 mark. And so we're working with a friends group from Lake City. It's called Friends of Lake San Cristobal. We're working with the Trust for Public Land through some of their fundraising efforts. And we're partnering with the Ben Brownlee Memorial Fund, which is a local partnership here in Hinsdale County. Chris Castilian is GOCO's executive director. I think Hinsdale County is, you know, very scrappy. They have a lot of impacts from all of us coming in to recreate, you know, whether it's winter or summer. And that community is really stuck together and focused on, you know, an outdoor recreation economy. The grant that you got is in part to help communities thrive even in the midst of a pandemic, right? Yeah, absolutely. And as we we went into the summer, we were expecting a pretty quiet summer, frankly, in Hinsdale County. And unexpectedly, we had visitors from all over. We had the busiest summer that we have ever had in modern history. Oh, wow. And so I think that the combination of our landscape and an opportunity to social distance where we have 0.7 person per square mile was just so attractive to people wanting to be out and about. And so it sort of changed our perspective of what kind of funds we were looking for and how we were going to address some of the impacts of this increase in tourism. Uh, Lake City, the only town in Hinsdale County, which is filled with public lands. Lake City was once billed as the metropolis of San Juan when it was a thriving supply point for gold and silver mines. Uh, Now it's a town of 400 year-round residents, and it's probably best known for its proximity to the place where the cannibal Alfred Packer ate his traveling companions in 1874. Uh, I remember going to the Cannibal Cafe when I was in town. Is this archipelago project a signal that Lake City is working to become known for something else? Yes, Alfred Packer is our most notorious resident. Uh, We've also had visits from people such as Susan B. Anthony, who stood on our courthouse steps and fought for the right for women to vote. It did not pass in 1877 for us with with our minor crowd, but we've definitely been evolving as a community to really embrace the outdoor recreation assets that we have, four wildernesses, two wilderness study areas, the headwaters of the Rio Grande. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Christy Borchers is a Hinsdale County Commissioner and part of a campaign to create an archipelago park on Lake San Cristobal. The first vaccines for COVID-19 should arrive in the state any day now. Here's Governor Jared Polis. This vaccine is really the gateway to the end of the pandemic to return to normalcy. Uh, So let's double down in the next few weeks and months. What will the rollout look like in Colorado? CPR's John Daly and Andrea Dukakis are on our pandemic reporting team. Hello to you both. Good morning. 
Uh, Before we get to the vaccine rollout, Andrea, you have some news about COVID-19 cases in Colorado. Right. State officials like Rebecca Herlihy sounded cautiously optimistic Thursday. She said case numbers and hospitalizations seem to be taking a break from their upward trend. We know that these numbers are are still really high. There's still clearly a a large amount of COVID-19 transmission that's happening around the state. And these numbers seem to be a bit unstable, meaning that the numbers are going up and down every couple of days. But overall, it does appear that we're in some sort of a high plateau with the amount of COVID-19 transmission that's occurring in the state. The Colorado Health Department was really nervous that gatherings around Thanksgiving would lead to a rise in cases right about now. Mm. But that hasn't happened, at least not yet. And Herlihy says she's not sure why, but she thinks it's because of increased restrictions and people heeding physical distancing rules. So that's Rachel Herlihy from the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. There was also a grim marker that showed up in the data Thursday. What was that, Andrea? The latest data shows there was a new record for the most number of deaths on a single day in Colorado. That is for people with COVID. On November 27th, there were 59 deaths, uh, which one of my colleagues noted gives Black Friday a new meaning. John Daly, this is going to be a long, slow process to vaccinate people. You've been looking at the numbers. How many doses is Colorado starting out with? Indeed, a long process for sure. Uh, The state's ordered just under 47,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine. It plans to add about 96,000 doses of the Moderna vaccine. So that's around 142,000 doses for a state with a population of nearly 6 million people. Now, we expect the FDA to grant approval for the Pfizer vaccine today or tomorrow. In the end, the state's incident commander, Scott Bookman, says it'll take many months to vaccinate the general public, likely through next summer. Okay, a lot of numbers there. So I just want to emphasize, in a state of six million, the first uh, round of vaccines from these two companies could be about 142,000 in Colorado if you combine Moderna and Pfizer. Okay, so assuming everything stays on track to receive the vaccine, Uh, It is looking like next week now. What happens, John? Yeah, that's right. The state will deploy the vaccine in phases. So phase 1A is this winter. Vaccines will go first to high-risk healthcare workers and the staff and residents of long-term care residents. And this plan mirrors what the Centers for Disease Control recommends Phase 1B gets the vaccine to healthcare workers with lower exposure, also first responders and workers in prisons and workers in hospice and home health settings. Those long-term care facilities are so important because they were hit hard, we know. And of course, those are folks who are particularly vulnerable. That's the initial phase this winter. What about for the spring? Uh, That will be phase two, and that's when vaccines should be available for higher-risk people and essential workers. And how are those defined, Andrea? That can't be apolitical, you know. Well, phase two includes people older than 65. It also includes those with health conditions, things like heart disease, cancer, obesity, people who work in places and interact with the public, like grocery stores and schools, are also in phase two. Also folks who work in what's called high-density settings like farms and meatpacking plants. Um, And it includes healthcare workers not already vaccinated. One other interesting 
interesting group is those who took place in the vaccine trials and got a placebo. And got the placebo. Uh, okay, so f- that's phase one and phase two. How many phases are there? In this so process? the plan is for three phases. Phase three will be for the general public. And that's not expected until the summer. Until summer. Andrew, the Pfizer vaccine requires very specialized care. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, it has to be kept between minus 60 and minus 86 degrees Celsius, which is obviously incredibly cold. It requires a special freezer. Colorado purchased 10 additional ultra-cold freezers to use across the state. But once the vaccine comes out of those freezers and it's in a regular refrigerator, it has to be used within five days. So the fear is that if they're not used quickly enough, the doses could expire and be wasted. You really need a tightly designed plan to get it out to folks. The Moderna vaccine, which is likely the next one we'll see, doesn't require the same super cold temperatures. It's fascinating. We got a listener question just this morning about whether you'd be injected with something that was super cold. But the point is it's brought to a more reasonable refrigerated temperature and then administered. Exactly. Okay, John, you've been talking to a number of healthcare providers about the vaccine. What are they saying? You know, Ryan, it's really interesting. Uh, Virtually across the board, every doctor, provider, public health leader that I've talked to has talked about what a spectacular scientific achievement this is. Now, think back to the early days of the pandemic. This was seen as something that was a ways off. Remember that uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease doctor, said in early March that a vaccine was one year away. And now it's something like nine or 10 months later. And it's here. And from the various reports, we're looking at several vaccines, and they appear to be safe and effective. I have a talk to Dr. Richard Zane. He's the chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at the CU School of Medicine. I think that the level of efficacy that has been reported from both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine is really nothing short of phenomenal. I think the time that it took to develop the vaccine was remarkable. He used words like indescribable and history-making to have two vaccines now ready to go from this new method using mRNA, messenger RNA, and to be able to do this before the end of the year to actually give frontline providers who've been working so hard, putting their lives on the line, this vaccine. He said he was relieved by that. And as the governor has said, and you've just been talking about this, is seen as you know a big off-ramp, a potential end to this pandemic. I suspect we could do an hour on the concept of mRNA, John. But it, you know, Indeed. it used to take many years to develop a vaccine like this. What changed? You know, absolutely. Uh, Vaccines typically did take years, if not decades, to develop and reach people. The previous record was four years for the mumps vaccine. And there appear to be several factors at work in this case. You know, after 9-11, there was a heightened recognition that the world could face a global threat from a novel virus like this virus. So the groundwork has been laid over many years. There was research from the 2003 SARS outbreak that helped scientists understand how coronavirus works. And this virus, scientifically speaking, is an easier target for a vaccine. Also, we know that Chinese scientists mapped out its genetic sequence earlier this year, and then teams around the world have been working on this. And of course, money, it always takes money. We have vast sums of money that have been spent around the globe. And the budget for Operation Warp Speed here in the United States is reportedly as big as 
$18 billion. $18 billion. I mean, you really understand all of those a hyperbole that Dr. Zane was using when you consider the fact that the next quickest vaccine was four years in development. I mean, that's really important perspective. This is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and members of our COVID-19 reporting team are with us, Andrea Dukakis and John Daly. We're talking about the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine in Colorado. Andrea, we've gotten a lot of questions about adverse side effects from the vaccine. What do we know in that respect? We know that from the studies that folks have experienced pain in their arm from the shot, they've also had headaches or been tired, and some people will get a fever. A few in the UK have had allergic reactions, and that's prompted Britain to warn that hospitals should not give the vaccine to people with a history of major allergic reactions. We have gotten a ton of questions from people who have allergies and are concerned about getting a vaccine. We talked to Dr. Anoush Mehta. He's a pulmonary and critical care doctor with Denver Health and National Jewish Health. He's also served on the state medical advisory group on the vaccine. He said, based on what he's read, most people with allergies that aren't that severe should get a vaccine. Every medication, every foreign substance we put in our body, there's a risk of allergic reactions. But I don't think it should make us shy about wanting to vaccinate people. Yes, if you've had a terrible anaphylactoid reaction where you couldn't breathe before, maybe consider waiting to see what happens. But the data suggests that those are exceedingly rare and far between. If you get itchy when you eat avocado, if you get a little bit red when you have penicillin, you know, I would still tell you to get the vaccine. Okay, so if you have relatively mild reactions to things, that should not dissuade you. Uh, Andrea, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines require two doses. That's got to complicate things. Yet there are other vaccines that require two doses, like the shingles vaccine. That's recommended for people 50 or older. They're supposed to get each dose a few months apart, but that's on a much smaller scale than this vaccine, which is pretty much for everyone. So there's a big question here. Um, Once those organizing um, get folks out for the first vaccine, how do they make sure that they come back a couple weeks later? Dr. Mehta told us that's definitely a concern. You know, a twice-a-day medication is not as good as a -a once-a-day medication, and I can sometimes don't even remember to take my once-a-day medication. So... Anything that requires more than one encounter or more than one dose, that's what effectiveness is. So how effective is it going to be with people missing second doses, maybe getting it a few days later? We just don't know. We're all going to have to work on in terms of education and stuff like that. They also have a plan to offer folks cell phone reminders if they want to be called about their second shot. I mean, in some ways, this is a double public education campaign. Exactly. It's getting people out for the first round and then the reminder for the second. One example of how critical communication will be moving forward. Andrea, you spoke with a primary care doctor who says... She's getting flooded with questions about this from patients. Right, and she'd like to be able to answer them, but she can't. Dr. Mary Catherine Husney has a small family practice in Denver. She has some older patients, some with pre-existing conditions, who will be eligible in Phase 2. She has other patients who won't be eligible until Phase 3. I would like to be able to tell my patients where they can expect to get the vaccine. It's unclear whether... It's just going to be in large distribution centers, whether they're going to have to go to the hospital to get it, whether they're going to have to go to the pharmacy to get it. 
Dr. Husney says she doesn't feel great about pharmacies vaccinating people. She says sometimes her patients get their shingles vaccine from a pharmacy, and they don't get a lot of medical information about potential side effects. So the state is going to need to do a better job of communicating to doctors. And the third phase, uh, the least vulnerable people, uh, will be inoculated probably around the time that we're wearing flip-flops and tank tops in the summer. (laughs) This is going to be a a fairly slow rollout. John Daly, the doctors you've talked to, what's keeping them up at night about this? Well, you know, Ryan, the main thing is if people decide to opt out of getting the vaccine. A recent Colorado poll found just 60 percent of respondents said they'd be willing to take a COVID-19 vaccine. That's below the 70 percent estimated by medical groups needed to reach broad protection through herd immunity. Now, the figures were lower with key demographic groups, including Latinx and black Coloradans, Republicans, women, and those with a high school education or less. So vaccine hesitancy and also outright misinformation is keeping those doctors up at night. And also another thing, think about the challenge of vaccinating, as we've discussed, more than 5 million people in Colorado and more than 300 million people in the United States and billions globally. Dr. Mehta, who uh, Andrea referenced before, he says that distributing the vaccine and administering it is a massive job. Once we start getting up to the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people we're attempting to vaccinate, that's logistically very difficult. He says it'll be critical to address hesitancy, especially with those key groups that uh, we've talked about, communities of color and others. uh, And we know that that those groups have been particularly hard hit by the pandemic. And what should that communication, that outreach look like, John? Well, I'm hearing one key thing would be to uh, work through community groups that are trusted sources of information in those communities. Also, uh, I've been told that uh, the, the way the plan is structured, many people of color will be among those larger groups. So with the first wave, that's healthcare workers, people in long-term care facilities, both staff and residents. And then in that second wave, that's essential workers. And that includes people older than 65 Uh, those with chronic health conditions like heart disease, cancer, obesity, those who are immunocompromised, uh, also people who interact with the public at work, like at schools and grocery stores, and those in high-density work settings like farms and meatpacking plants. Also, I spoke with a lawmaker who is the only doctor in the General Assembly, Democrat, Yadira Caraveo, she's a pediatrician, so she's very familiar with vaccines. She says she's ready to get the vaccine herself, and that clear and consistent messaging is key. I think that, as with most issues around health, the best messengers are the doctors and the nurses that are seeing the patients in clinics and in hospitals every single day. And so I think the best person usually to get information from is your own doctor. Representative Caraveo thinks that many people who may have questions about the vaccine will be reassured and convinced by their doctors. Andrea Dukakis, let's turn to some of the controversy around who gets the vaccine when. The state switched the order and moved nursing home residents up the priority list. And people in congregate housing, so that would include prison inmates, down the list. Uh, So as we said, people in nursing homes are in phase one. 
Right. And you can imagine that these facilities and their residents, along with their family members, are relieved about that. A report came out that two in five nursing homes have outbreaks right now. Doug Farmers with the Colorado Healthcare Association, it represents nursing homes and assisted living facilities. We've seen such severe impacts from the virus in these residential care facilities since the very beginning, you know, since March. And so to us, it makes a lot of sense to ensure that the vaccines, the first vaccines, are going toward those, the workers and the residents in those care communities. I just want to underscore one thing, John Daly. You talked a little earlier about herd immunity. That's a really important element here. In other words, it's not as if the pandemic is over when the first 100 people are vaccinated. There there needs to be a kind of community buildup for this thing to truly create a shield. Right, exactly. So when you get the shot, it will protect you. But when many people get the shot, it'll protect the broader community and ideally limit the spread of the virus. That's what we want to happen. So that's why it's so important to get a lot of people vaccinated, a high percentage of your population vaccinated, is because we really want to drive this virus out of the population. And you do that by getting a lot of people vaccinated. Okay, so it's a responsibility that we have perhaps to ourselves and to the broader community. That is part of the conversation here. Well, thanks to you both. I'm grateful for your reporting. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You heard from CPR's John Daly and Andrea Dukakis. They're part of our COVID-19 coverage team. Andrea and John mentioned that physicians are getting bombarded with questions about the vaccine. Your questions are coming in fast and furious as well, and we are going to answer them in a special Colorado Matters on Wednesday. It's an hour-long show dedicated to inoculating you against misinformation. Santa Claus handed out presents the other day in Denver wearing a face shield to people lined up in cars. Hi. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I hope y'all have a wonderful one. Thank you. Happy holidays. Great day. 77-year-old Linda Warren is a Santa Claus on a special mission to make sure that kids rejected by their parents because of their sexuality or gender identity still get presents. This is her 22nd year handing out gifts through the LGBTQ Center on Colfax. It's very important to me because... Back when I was coming up, you weren't accepted at all. If anyone found out you were gay, that was just, you know, you wouldn't have any friends, hardly. My family did find out I was gay after I was grown, and they disowned me. So it's very important to me to make sure that all children are taken care of. Anything that we can, I would step up to the plate and try to do for these children to see that they got an education, to see that they do not do without Christmas presents, It's just something that is very close to my heart, and I'm sure probably because I was disowned. Warren's also quick to point out that anyone associated with the center who wants a gift can get one. You don't have to have been kicked out to get a present from Queer Santa. And that's how she's referred to, Queer Santa. But it's a moniker that scared her at first. The reason being because of my age and the word queer was used, you know, to make fun of us when I was growing up. But... I had to finally realize that the children of of this day and time have taken that word back and they will not let people make fun of us by using queer. So it took me a while to get used to being queer Santa. 
Normally, Linda Warren, queer Santa, gets people exactly what they want for Christmas. But with the pandemic, it just wasn't possible to get everyone's wish list and do a lot of shopping. But what we did was we bought gift cards and we wrapped the gift cards in a box with other things like rainbow socks and and different things for them to have. And what does Warren want for Christmas? What do I want for Christmas? (laughs) I would love for us to have peace and happiness and for this 2020 to go away and for the mask to not have to be worn. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot. In all my 77 years, I don't believe I've ever seen a year like this. Queer Santa Linda Warren, who for more than two decades has handed out gifts at the Center on Colfax, which serves the LGBTQ population of Metro Denver. Special thanks to photojournalist Hart Van Denberg. See his photos of the drive through Christmas at CPR.org. Okay, when we come back, a solo project from the lead singer of the Lumineers. Wesley Schultz describes the album as a supermodel in sweatpants. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Every street has stories, and every year, Denverite tells a few during our street week. Hi, I'm Anna Campbell, editor of Denverite, and next week we're pounding the pavement of Denver's Bruce Randolph Avenue. Look for profiles of folks we meet there, some standout restaurants in the neighborhood, and a dive into the life of the man who gave Bruce Randolph Avenue its name and its heart. Check out Street Week next week and sign up for our daily newsletter at denverite.com. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's been a strange year to release new music. Maybe it's why one of Colorado's biggest music stars looks to the past on his new album. Lumineers frontman Wesley Schultz recently released Vignettes, his debut solo album. It's a collection of stripped-down covers. Bell-bottom blues, you made me cry I don't want to lose this feeling And if I could choose a place to die It would be in your arms that's Bell Bottom Blues, originally by Eric Clapton's band, Derek and the Dominoes. There are covers as well from Dylan Springsteen and Coldplay. And a Wesley Schultz, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Eric Clapton is a renowned guitar player, but this version has no guitar, just you and a piano. How did it feel to strip it down like that? I described the album as a love letter to a lot of these artists and these songs. And I felt like part of the joy of recording Bell Bottom Blues the way we did was to show how good of a songwriter Eric Clapton was if you weren't mesmerized by his guitar playing. Hmm. So it was a way to expose the melodies and the lyrics. The lyrics are so deep. Um, And then even in his version, his voice is outstanding. So a lot of it just kind of floored me. I think a lot of this album is trying to expose what was already there but maybe it was dressed up more ornately than... It's like we're putting the, the supermodel in sweatpants. <laughs> the way to put it. I so appreciate your sense that covers can be a way of rediscovering the beauty of a song. I, I think that there are some who react to covers as, you know, bad imitations or an offense to an artist. But I've heard so many covers that make me fall back in love 
with a track or or an artist. Uh, give me another example of a supermodel you you put in sweatpants for this record. <laughs> I agree with some of those people, to be honest, about covers because some of them sound like poor karaoke versions of of the original. Um, I think the only way to do a cover is to avoid the wedding band approach, you know, <clears throat> not trying to sound like the original, but to reimagine it. Mm-hmm. Um, so on this album, one real example that happened on it was we did If It Makes You Happy by Sheryl Crow. And I feel like that version sounds really peppy and her version, that is uh, Sheryl Crow's, sounds really upbeat and almost triumphant. The way we did it, we were trying to bring out maybe the real sentiment behind that. And I have experience with that in the Lumineers with writing songs like Hohe or Ophelia or Gloria, where they become these singles, these fast, happy sounding songs, but at their core, they're really lonesome and sad. So with that, we put that out. And then I wrote her a note. You wrote Cheryl Yeah, I wrote, I wrote her a note and she responded by saying that she heard the version and it made her cry. And I felt like that was a really validating moment because if you can make the person who wrote the song feel feel something different about it and see it in a new way, that was what we were trying to do with the rest of the audience. And she's probably the hardest one to convince. So it was a really special moment to get that feedback. Well, okay, I made this up. I promised you I'd never give up. If it makes you happy It can't be that bad If it makes you happy Then why the hell are you so sad? Wesley Schultz there, who apparently made Cheryl Crow cry... Uh, you recorded, Wesley, um, vignettes in Boyceville, New York, which I admit I had to look up, population 562. And uh, the band that backed you was not the Lumineers. What's the backstory of of Boyceville and the setting there? Well, I have, a, I have a cabin out near Catskill, New York, which that's near Woodstock to put it, in, put it on a map for uh-huh. people. Um, so the Catskills, there's, there's a lot of history to that area it's almost like a mystical place where everyone from the Hudson river school of painters, which kind of put the United States artists, visual artists on the map uh, in the world, all the way up to the seventies where you had all these artists, Van Morrison, Bob Dylan, so many people moved up to Woodstock Catskill area. Um, There's something in the mountains. I don't know what it is. It's like wisdom in Colorado. We have these really sharp edged, young mountains it's one of the youngest mountain ranges in the world and the catskills are one of the oldest so they're sort of worn down and wise and i think there's some there's something to that so anyway i was out there trying to get away from like the same routine every day in denver and so i was in my cabin in the woods with my family and then it just came up where we were i was with simon our producer of our last two records simon felice who's based there and he said you know bell bottom blues we did that a couple years ago would you ever want to do another cover like that? But yeah, maybe. He's like, what about a whole album? Hmm. Said, you know, the positive of that is that I'm not taking any of my ideas and using them on my own. I, I want to use all my original ideas for the band, for the Lumineers. And so this was a way to save all the good ideas that were originals for the band and then still do something creative and record something that I 
really loved. And it was a true sort of testament to these other songwriters. I so appreciate your your allegiance to the Lumineers and, you know, what you give to that band versus what you might do as, as a solo project. I am incredibly moved by your version of My City of Ruins, the Springsteen song. And it takes on just such a heaviness in the pandemic with words like boarded up windows and the empty streets. My brother's down on his knees My city of ruins My city's in a ruins Come on, rise up Come on Talk to me about the meaning that this song took on at this point in history. Yeah, so My City of Ruins, I grew up in New Jersey. I've been in Denver for about 11 years, but so my childhood spent around our patron saint of New Jersey, Bruce Springsteen. I just always was listening to his music by law, basically. And so <laughs> he came out with My City of Ruins around 9-11 on his album, The Rising, and I found out later that that song was actually previously written about Asbury Park in New Jersey, a beach town that fell upon some hard times and has since really revitalized itself and come back much stronger even. But he wrote about that. It it sort of evolved into a song about 9-11. And I felt like looking at just being in Denver and hearing helicopters going over my house every night and going to the protests and seeing them on TV as well. I think there was this overlap, this echo of what he was singing about back then to now. And it just felt like haunting and that much more relevant now. And it, and so it was the first song we knew we were going to put on this album, which is kind of why it leads, it leads the record as the first song on the album. I have to say, uh, Wesley Schultz, I ran that cover by the biggest Springsteen fan I know. And she usually is very, very wary of, of Springsteen covers because her reaction is, what, you think you, think you can do it better? And sh- she was so moved by this version. So It's cool when you can win over somebody who is a, you know, died in the wolf fan and say, <laughs> hey, I'm just reimagining this song. Um, instead of trying to kind of compete with the original, you want to make it your own. You, you made this album in quarantine. It, like, paint a picture of how that works. Well, like I said, I was out in the Catskills. We were just riding around on motorcycles out there. And my friend Simon had a studio that they had just finished. He had a couple days open. So he moved some things around and we, we got in there for, I believe it was like four and a half days. 
we did the album, he had some other people come in once I had to leave and, you know, add some backing vocals here. We had the Webb sisters who sang with Leonard Cohen when he was alive. And then they also sang with Tom Petty as well. Wow. Um, I had them sing on a few songs as well. And they did that in London. So we kind of had it piecemeal together. And it was something where I remember calling the label and saying, uh, I'm making a record and I want to put it out in a few weeks. And they're like, well, that just can't be done. And I said, well, what do we have to lose? I mean, you can do your best to promote something and set it up in the most scientific way. And nothing really makes sense right now for anybody. I think this album will find a place with people because it comforts me. You know, it gives me some solace. I think it can do that for other people, but it doesn't really matter how you quote unquote set it up. We just need to put this out. And so it was this huge push and this rush to get it out and organize everything, get the artwork. The whole thing was like a tornado. <laughs> it was unlike anything I've ever done with the Lumineers where we finished our last record and had to wait over a year to put it out. You know, this was very different. From the moment we decided to make the record, it was out into the world within two months. Goodness. Yeah, just one more weird pandemic outcome of 2020. And I, I guess the, the quarantine album has really become a new genre, you know? Yeah, I think in some ways that's going to be a blessing and in some ways that's going to be a curse because everyone has to find their own angle on it, you know? And you don't want to have people saying all the same things. So mm -hmm. the challenge is going to be who's going to write the quarantine record that matters after quarantine. Well, I guess before we go, is it dangerous, and I say this as a Coldplay fan, don't get me wrong, <laughs> uh, I think Chris Martin's voice is, is delicious and I could listen to it in a bunch of different contexts. I think the music they make is beautiful. I think your cover demonstrates that. But is there a, a danger to putting Coldplay uh, next to Dylan and Springsteen? I don't think so. I think... These are artists that taught me a lot about how to write songs myself. So I thought the choice of songs was based on the songs and not some ego, ego move. I also think Chris Martin is such a talented songwriter that he deserves to be in the, in the conversation with really great songwriters. If you look at how their, their music has permeated the world, they're all over. And I think mm -hmm. that's something that just makes sense to people. And, you know, you can get caught up in how it looks or, some surface details, but that guy knows how to write a song and it's undeniable. So I've admired them for a while. I went and saw them numerous times as a fan, as a kid growing up. So it, it made a lot of sense for me to put it on there. Honey, you are a rock Upon which I stand Wesley, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. And I come here to talk I hope you understand The green eyes Yeah, the spotlight Shines upon you And how could Anybody deny you? Cause I came here with a load, and it feels so much like. 
Since I met you And honey you should know That I could never go Without you Green eyes Honey Wesley Schultz of Denver is frontman for the Lumineers. His debut solo album, Vignettes, is out now. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to the team that helps bring this show to air. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Paolo Schalzada. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs>